Can you please turn to the Gospel of Luke? Remember that? Chapter 13. I'll be reading Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 21. And now he, Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then Jesus, or the Lord, answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Jesus, this morning, would you cause each of us to see and to hear, and thus respond in glorifying your name at your work, and that you would weed out this non-compassionate, legalistic religiosity so that we not be put to shame. Work this in us. Help me, therefore, as a pastor, unveil this text and its meaning and apply it to our hearts by your Spirit. Amen. What we see in this text this morning is that the presence of the kingdom of God, the gospel of the kingdom, creates people of the kingdom. And it exposes dead religious people. We've been away from our journey through the Gospel of Luke since September 2nd, so kind of remember where we're picking up and what's going on in Luke's narrative at this point. Luke has been more and more showing that the division between Jesus and the religious leaders is growing. Jesus now, with His apostles and other disciples, has been on the journey down south to Jerusalem and the cross. He just warned them in this chapter that if you don't repent, my fellow Jews, Israel, you will be cut down like a tree. Look what He said in verse 5. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And now in verse 10, Jesus is teaching on the Sabbath in the synagogue. And Luke puts it here in order to show that God's kingdom is operating with His healing in His teaching. The kingdom really is present despite ongoing opposition to the kingdom. That's his point. The reason I say that, I want you to look at verse 10. 
Notice the word therefore at the beginning of it. He said, therefore, meaning because of what just happened in the synagogue that we're going to look at this morning. Because of what just happened in the synagogue, therefore, Jesus taught with two parables. In other words, so these two parables here, of the leaven, of the seed, are an explanation of what was happening in the synagogue. The kingdom of God is present, she is healed, people rejoice, and others hate it and oppose it. So these two parables are meant to turn the light on for us to say, oh, that's why there's such division over Jesus in his ministry. And so what I want to do is I want to first go to the two parables that Jesus teaches so that we can then go back to the synagogue episode and understand why what is happening happened with the division. So let's go to the parables first. But I think we first need to try to get into the mindset of Jesus' disciples. They're on the road to Jerusalem now. They've been with him for a few years. These guys have left their business. They have left their former lifestyle to be with him. They have banked everything on the belief that this man, this carpenter turned preacher, is the one promised through the prophets, the Messiah. And they know that in a lot of ways he does not look like what everyone expected him to look like. He's not of noble birth. He has no connections with the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem. He was not trained in their schools. But they're with him because his penetrating teaching and preaching and miracles and healing have convinced them he, he's the one. So inside them, and you'll see this at the beginning of Acts too, even after his resurrection. Inside of these 12 and other disciples, they're expecting this son of David who was promised to usher in this kingdom to wipe out evil and sin and Roman rule and set up his throne in Jerusalem. And they also know as time goes on, it's not getting better with Israel, with the fellow Jews. The religious hierarchy is more and more in opposition to him. And they're just getting really confused. And their own future is looking a little shaky in following him. And so, these two parables show these guys and they show us that even though you guys are a small band with me, the king, even though this is a small beginning, seemingly insignificant to the world, yet its end will be huge. This kingdom, my ministry, your guys' ministry, my twelve, will end up permeating the universe. God's purpose through Christ will triumph. So, start with verse 18. And he, Jesus, therefore said, or he said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and it became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. Okay. Context. The theology of the Jews in the first century, there are different ways they have it, but in general they had it worked out essentially this way. 
The Son of David would come. The kingdom of God would therefore come in one fell swoop. Wipe out Satan, enemies, Gentiles, sickness, disease, Rome. Heaven, in a sense, would miraculously come down to earth and change everything. That's what they're expecting. We have already seen in our journey through Luke that Jesus has essentially said, no, it's different than you thought it would be. I have come. The kingdom, the reign of God, yes, is here. It's present. But it's also not yet. It's, it's here in its authority, in its power, almost clandestinely, secretly, spiritually, but it's not yet consummated in the, the fullness and changing everything and wiping all evil out. It's in the Scripture, it's in the Old Testament Scripture, but the theology of the Jews did not consider that there were two coming. That the Messiah, the King, the Son of David, was coming the first time in fulfillment of Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, in order to die and accomplish redemption and be raised from the dead. And usher in some period of time of between two worlds until He comes again the second time to consummate the kingdom, permeate the universe, full-blown tree, where the birds make nest. And so the kingdom of God means essentially, and Jesus is coming, the rule, the reign of God savingly that happens mainly through the word sown into the ground of human hearts. The kingdom of God means God is actually working. He's working miraculously through Jesus' ministry. He'll work through the apostles' ministry. He's working ever since in the miracle of new birth and bringing people about through the sown word of God. And he's doing that, and this was the mystery. He's doing that while all along the world continues on as it ever did. In evil and sin and death and darkness. And so the parable of the mustard seed illustrates that the truth of the kingdom of God, which will one day be this great tree, is just a little seed right now is what Jesus is saying. But that seed is the tree that is coming. The contrast Jesus is making is between the small beginning and that promised future glorious end that will come. So remember, the burning question for the disciples is, okay, I keep seeing opposition and, op- and it's getting worse. Okay, if this is the kingdom, how is this the kingdom of God that we're expecting? When there's so much Jewish leadership opposition. And Jesus' answer is, first the tiny seed, then later the large tree. The tree is the seed in the future. He's saying, guys, don't get overwhelmed, therefore, by society, by culture, by religiosity, its leadership in AD 33 or in 2013. The seed is the kingdom. It's real. If you're in it, you're real. Jesus says the man took a seed and he planted it in the dirt. He took an ordinary seed, a mustard seed, and he planted it. He didn't try to pretty the seed up and wrap it with gold and say, look how cool the seed is. It was just a regular dirty seed old, real mustard 
seed. That's the gospel of the kingdom. We don't have to embellish it. We don't have to try to make it prettier than an ordinary seed. We just need to plant it. Our brilliant ideas, our skillful techniques are not the power of the kingdom. Paul made it clear, didn't he? And you wonder why he said it this way? Because he knows, he knows human nature. He knows the flesh, even of us religious people. I am not ashamed. Why would you say that, Paul? Because he knows the human, fleshly, sinful nature will always be ashamed of the bloody cross. He says, I am not ashamed of the sea. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. Not to everybody, but to everybody who believes. And this is the glorious news of the seed of the kingdom. God has not left us with the true bad news that we are all sinners awaiting a perfect, holy wrath. It's true news and it's bad news, but He did not just leave us there. He has sent the promised Son of David to become a human being and thus deliver the good news of what He accomplished, that in His humanity, He was the substitutionary sacrifice for our guilt and its consequences. And God raised Him from the dead so that all who would believe in Him would be saved forever from their sin. It's a gospel of the kingdom. We need to make sure that we are sowing that seed. The actual gospel of the kingdom itself. There are many people within the church who have tried to camouflage the seed because they, they know it's unattractive to the flesh. It's unattractive to the people we want to reach with Jesus and get them to be like Jesus. So we need to pretty the seed up. He goes something like this. People don't want to hear. The, the ones you want to reach out there, we're going to move to a new neighborhood, you want to reach them? Okay, they, they want to watch football and go boating and stuff on Sunday morning. But Okay, how do you get them? Let's see, they're not saying, someone please come tell me how sinful I am. And that the wrath of God is waiting for me. People don't want to hear that. So, okay, we believe that. But, you know, we need to say it a little bit differently. Because they don't want that. We need to dress it up. We need to find out what they want to hear and figure out a way to tell them that so that they will like Christianity and they will like our church and they will come back. Let them know. All your dreams, Jesus will help you be all you ever wanted to be. But that's not the gospel. No matter how pretty you make a seed in your scientific lab, you put it in the ground, it's not going to grow. Jesus says, plant the seed. Seed's here. And I, Jesus, the King and the Kingdom, will triumph in the end over the world through the seed being sown. But I tried it and I don't see any plants after two weeks. So, 
not your job. Keep sowing the seed. You throw the seed out in this world because we're between the times. Jesus gives us, this is why this is weird this way. The seed causes opposition. People don't like it. A lot of times religious people certainly won't like it. You throw the seed and it lands on cement. Hearts. Expect it. And sometimes it lands on good soil. And in that good soil, that seed sprouts and it grows and it transforms one life at a time forever and for eternity. Jesus goes on in verse 20. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, yeast, that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. This is another way of saying the same thing. The kingdom of God which will one day permeate the leaven, the dough, the world, the universe. It's just a little leaven right now hidden in there. It's here, it's real, in the end, it will permeate. And remember, these guys are expecting the world and society to be radically transformed and turned upside down, totally. And so they're thinking, how could this ministry of yours, Jesus, be the kingdom of God? Jesus' answer is the leaven is in the dough. Still need to Need the dough more, and you need to get that leaven into that 50 pounds of dough in there. And then before you bake it, and that is going to cause it to rise, that's going to come. But the leaven's here. It's real. It's in the dough, and it will permeate the dough of the universe in the future. Okay. So there's his two little parables about the kingdom, what's going on. An illustration of those realities of the kingdom is what happens in the synagogue. Look at the end of what happened after Jesus rebuked the president of the synagogue. Verse 17 says, As he said these things in public, public religious service, as Jesus said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Two responses. And he said, therefore, because of that dynamic, these parables. That's why I think they're so connected in Luke to understand what happened. The presence of of the kingdom of God, the presence of the gospel of the kingdom in this world, in Jesus' day and today, in this world which continues on as it ever had with murder, death, and sickness, and disease. This wasn't what the way it's supposed to be, they thought. The presence of the kingdom in this world that continues on in this present evil, dark Age creates people who are brand new in the kingdom. And it divides them, and often from religious people, divides them from those who are hardened by the ministry of Jesus. So let's look at the synagogue. It's a normal Saturday, Sabbath service. Jesus is the guest teacher. People filed in. The men sat on one side of the room. The women and the children sat on the other. And for 18 years, every Saturday, this hunched back, miserable little lady hobbled in, 
sitting there. Who knows what she's been going through for 18 years. What kind of pain. So bent over. What that does to a, a woman in her 20s and 30s. and What she thinks about herself and her beauty. and Probably has to look up like that at people. But we pick up with verse 10. And now he, Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. Now, Jesus doesn't ask her anything about her ailment. She didn't say, Jesus, please heal me. But verses 12 to 13 simply say, when Jesus saw her. He stopped everything. And he called her over. Come here. And he spoke to her. Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her. And she was immediately made straight. And she Gave glory to God. Jesus could have easily just finished sermon, finished teaching, gone and had lunch. But he, the master that he is, he was on the offensive. He has something he wants to say about the Sabbath day and how to keep it holy. And he wants to confront religious hypocrites. And that's why he healed her that day. That's why he took his compassion. He took his love for the plight of this woman and says, I'm going to act. Because this is what Sabbath rest set apart from every other day of worship of God, ought to be about. Or is he going to go on the pizza kingdom? We just say it this way. And what we just saw Jesus do with that woman, the kingdom of God, like a seed, not a big tree yet, it's kind of hidden, like a seed was sprouting out of the soil in that synagogue. And the woman is healed. And yet, here's the mystery that Jesus came and unfolded about what's happening. And yet, dead religious people will still be here. Pick up with verse 14. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant, it's a nice big word for angry. How do you get angry at that? Angry because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. He said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites. He explains why he says, Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger? You don't want to die of thirst, right? So what if it's the Sabbath? So you untie it, you lead it away to have water. 
care about your animals. And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, ought not she be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said it, he put these hypocrites to shame. But all those who were not hypocrites rejoiced at the glorious things that he was doing. So that's what I'm going to do with the rest of our time. I think there are lessons here in this text for every one of us religious persons. And the question that just hangs over us and especially, I think, the longer we're Christians, you've got to rethink again, is are we children of the kingdom rejoicing? Or are we dead religious people? So the first lesson from this text is that dead religious people, they lack compassion. For other people. Those alive by the Spirit in the kingdom are to be feeling for and acting on that mercy, that pity, that compassion for the plight of others. Jesus confronted religious hypocrites on another occasion in Mark chapter 7. That's what he said. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips. So they're religious. But their heart is far from me. And therefore, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men, not the Scripture. That's what he means. He goes on. You have the commandments of God, and you hold to the tradition of men. And Jesus said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God, like love your neighbor as yourself, this daughter of Abraham. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your religious cultures. Okay, he said traditions, but how is it different? In the church, not just Jewish synagogues in the first century, the church for the last 2,000 years has been a mixed bag of legalists. They'll always be with us. Creating legalism in the guise of Jesus' religion. Jesus opened up His synagogue ministry, remember? Was that a year and a half ago? A year ago? I don't know. In Nazareth. He opened up saying this the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. He sent me with compassion to set at liberty, freedom, those who are oppressed. There's Jesus' ministry. And then you got the president of that local synagogue who is in utter contrast to the purpose of Jesus. This guy did not notice that this hunchback woman was even there. Knew who she was, but he didn't notice her just week after week after week after week. For one, she's a woman. I mean, there's a whole sermon there that I'm not going to preach about Jesus, in his view of women, from uh, what most of human society up at that point 
in the way they, where they put women. He made a point to say, she's a daughter of Abraham. She's a covenant. Covenant. Daughter of Abraham. But this guy didn't notice any of that. She's probably poor. Therefore, her giving was insignificant to the budget of the synagogue. But then Jesus, like a laser beam, focuses on her. Sees her. Calls her up. Touches her. And heals her. This leader, he could not care less. But now that he even sees it and she's straightened, he did not care if she was freed of 18 years of misery. I mean, I feel right now for my wife in this back thing for what, 48 hours? This guy couldn't care less. There's no rejoicing over the compassion that Jesus showed to her. He was just a controlling, hard-hearted religious person. And a coward who would not even speak directly to Jesus, though he's the one he's attacking. See the text, verse 14? But this ruler of the synagogue, indignant, angry, because Jesus healed on the Sabbath, said to the people... Just come on days you're supposed to work days, not on rest days where we have 847 different commandments on how to keep the Sabbath and not do work, well, really cheat to do work, but we call it not work because we have all kinds of traditions and rules that we have created. To be in the kingdom of God, to be being conformed to the image of Jesus is the opposite of what we see in the leader of the synagogue. It is to be tender-hearted instead of a hard-hearted, non-relational, religious fundamentalist who prides himself on keeping the law, even though the whole time his action was manifested proof that he constantly broke the entire law of Moses by failing to love his neighbor, this daughter of Abraham, as himself. And that's why Jesus goes on to blast this guy and everyone like him publicly. So that's the first lesson. Believers, those of us who are in the kingdom of God, are to be about following the model of Jesus and having a heart that is constantly softened. And when it's hard, we beg Him to soften my heart that I may feel if you have someone in my life that I could do a compassionate act for. If we're walking in and by the Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit of new birth, we will be growing in our compassion, feeling, plight, and helping and loving others in need. The second lesson that we see in this text is that legalism, dead religion, is joyless and it's angry. But life in Christ is filled with joy. And it rejoices at Jesus' deliverance in other people's lives. This poor woman had a dramatic, miraculous, instantaneous healing. And all this guy could do was get angry. Because Jesus broke his cultural, churchly, religious ways of doing things. The third lesson is that dead religious people are hypocrites. But genuine believers 
darkness. This is the work of the Spirit. Can see. Ah, more clearly, that was the Lord's work. Starting with verse 15. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? So here Jesus commends everybody who agrees with this guy. Notice he uses the plural, hypocrites. So he's not just talking to him. He's talking to a lot of folk that were there. He knows they're hypocrites. Come on under days and be healed by Jesus. He knows a guy doesn't mean it. They're not going to invite him back. Jesus knew the system. He grew up in it. He knew their oral traditions. Yes, there is a way to properly allow your donkey to have water on the Sabbath. Not good if your animals aren't going to have water. So there's a way to do it. Now, since the first century, that stuff has been written down, and we can read about those laws in the Mishnah. Okay. This is what he's referring to. You guys have all these laws you've worked out so that your animals don't die and you can continue to farm. That's nice. You care a lot more about animals than you do about human beings. Sort of like, sort of like the guy who has a store. And he's so obsessed with the cleanliness of the store and everything being in order that he keeps his doors locked most of the business day so that customers don't come in and mess up his shelves. This is what Jesus is dealing with. It's like you forgot why you have a business. You forgot why you have a Sabbath. You forgot why the, you, my people, are coming together to meet and to worship God. Church history has shown we have constantly come up with all kinds of other oral traditions that become written traditions and they become the way we do it. Whether you really codify it in the Roman church after years and sacramental religion gets developed, or whether we, no, we don't codify anything, but you go to another church and the way that they may do something, they raise their hands out and not do that. Oh, you, you don't raise your hands? How can you be worshiping God if you don't raise your hands? We can go on and on where we confuse culture, religious cultures, Christian cultures, traditions with the Word of God, with the reason on that day with Jesus, you're coming together to worship the Lord or throughout church history, what is the focus, what is the reason, and are we about that goal? No matter what kinds of traditions we create to get there and to not confuse the traditions from the truth of the gospel and the goal of worship. Fourth lesson is that dead religion always has mixed up priorities. It loves it when people keep its rules. Even if their heart is far from God. That's what this guy was doing. Who cares about the woman? Who cares that a miracle was done? Keep our rules. But genuine life, on the other hand, with Jesus, clearly distinguishes. It keeps these two things at focus. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul. And love your neighbor as yourself. It understands the difference between animals and human beings. 
we're, the more our American society becomes pagan, it's already happened. Trust me. That gap of understanding those creatures made in the image of God versus all other creatures who are not made in the image of God, that gap gets squished down together. And it's happening. And Jesus is essentially saying, you care more about animals who are God's creation, but they are not made in the image of God with a soul and a moral capability. They are not the reflection of God's glory. You care more about them than human beings. The more you get the gospel straight, the more you get your heart straight with God, the more you see the distinction between the two. Those who are not just religious, but alive to Christ. They are marked by the pursuit of loving God and loving others like this poor, hunched back daughter of Abraham. And fifth lesson we get from here is that dead religion glories in outward conformity. But those who are truly affected by the kingdom of God, by the seed, by the leaven of Jesus, His saving work in them, glory in God. Not man and not man-made traditions. Right in front of this guy, a miracle happened. His response is he's angry because Jesus didn't keep my rules. He didn't do what I understand to be the religious thing to do in a formal synagogue service and on this day. He was mad because he wants Jesus and others to boast in his rules and the way he keeps his rules because he feels great about how he keeps his rules. It's the same thing that will unfold the decades later that Paul will have to deal with in preaching the gospel to non-Jewish communities. There were many first century Jewish professing Christians, professing that they believe in the resurrection of Christ, who could not stand it that Paul did not tell these non-Jews to keep their rules. And this is how Paul summarized it in Galatians 6.13. They desire to have you circumcised. Keep that particular rule. They want you to be circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. The opposite of that is, when this woman was healed by Jesus, the text says, she glorified. God. The goal of Jesus' ministry was always to bring glory to God. Those who think they are saved or approved by their good works, by their rule keeping, bring glory to themselves. Millions upon millions of religious people are very comfortable in their dead religion simply <laughs> because it does not confront their flesh. It's a weird statement. It doesn't confront really their sinful nature, but instead their rules, their religiosity, their works righteousness feeds their flesh. But Jesus always confronts our sinful natures, our pride, our hard-heartedness. On the other hand, those who have been truly plucked out of the kingdom of darkness by the mustard seed 
by the leaven that's permeating them of that kingdom dough, they know and they grow more and more to know that it is totally and always owing to His miraculous saving grace. And so they, like this woman, and like the crowd, give glory to God. Come on up. That's the question. That we, no matter how much Christ is powerfully working in us, is a constant, healthy question to ask yourself each day. Which side do I fall on? The leader of the synagogue or this woman who gives glory to God? As verse 17 summarizes it. And Jesus, as He said these things, all His adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by Him. So let's take this time as we're preparing our hearts. All of you who are baptized believers in Christ. Preparing your hearts as you hold the bread and hold the cup. And wait and partake together as we pray over it. That, oh Jesus, grow compassion in my heart. Grow the fruit of love and joy kindness, peacemaking, helpfulness to others so that I may give glory to you. Let's pray. Father, do this as you have been doing this in the last hour and a half. Continue to work by your Spirit powerfully in each believer. If there are those here who don't know what side they're on, would you do the miracle of calling them forward, saying to them with the word that creates what it says, you are released from your spiritual death. Now come unto me. Oh, work these things to the glory of your mighty name.